Welcome to the Envision Forum Podcast. I'm FERC Chairman Neil Chatterjee. Joining me today is Tyson Slocum, Director of Public Citizen's Energy Program. Public Citizen is a nonprofit consumer advocacy organization with more than a half million members and supporters nationwide. Since 2000, Tyson has led Public Citizen's efforts to represent consumers by promoting an equitable transition towards renewable energy and sustainable transmission solutions for working families. He's active in many cases before federal agencies, including FERC, and serves on the Energy and Environmental Markets Advisory Committee at the U.S. Commodity Future Trading Commission. Welcome to the uh, podcast, Tyson. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, this is the Envision Forum podcast. I uh, want to give special thanks uh, for your coming out to Lexington, Kentucky for the uh, uh, original Envision Forum. I uh, hope you had a good time in the Commonwealth, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, Mr. Chairman, it, it's uh, my pleasure to be here today. Thanks so much for having me, and and uh, the hospitality in Kentucky was fantastic. It was a great event, and I was happy to be a part of it. Well, I really appreciated it and uh, have appreciated uh, our relationship and uh, uh, working together the past couple of years. Um, I hear that Public Citizen is nearing its 50th anniversary, uh, just as you mark your 20th anniversary at, uh, at Public Citizen. So uh, uh, with first, congratulations to that. Um, we know you're a passionate advocate uh, for consumers. Uh, just to get things kicked off, can you uh, sort of give us uh, the highlights of some of the accomplishments that you are most proud of uh, in the last 20 years? And what do you hope to achieve in the next 20 years? That's a great question. Uh, and I first, Mr. Chairman, I just want to give a shout out to FERC staff. Uh, as you probably know, I'm, I'm pretty active at FERC, and and COVID uh, has really hit us all uh, pretty hard. Uh, but yet, FERC hasn't missed a beat. When I make a filing, it gets approved and put into the system. And I know that there are FERC staff, there's human beings involved in that process. Um, uh, FERC staff has to work hard on delivering orders on, you know, hundreds of different dockets. And there's a lot of work involved in that. And I haven't seen any changes in the responsiveness of the agency during COVID. And I think that's a testament to, you know, the hard work of the commissioners and the chairman, but also the staff. And so I just want to really give a shout out to, to FERC staff for all of their, um, their work during these trying times. Thank you for that, and uh, I know that message will be greatly appreciated by uh, by the folks who really um, have uh, pulled together during these challenging times. So I really appreciate you saying that. Um, and so, getting to your question, uh, what are some of my proudest accomplishments over the last twenty years? I think um, just making an impact in the areas where we work. Um, you know, public citizen is a consumer advocacy group and and we are trying to represent the interests of households uh and on the energy space um that's a big challenge uh there's a lot of issues facing households and energy uh, a lot of people uh need to see action on climate change and want to have access to cleaner energy but also energy price burdens 
uh, are always a, a big deal, especially to, to moderate and lower income folks. And so I'm always proud of work that we do to try to highlight the need for more equity in our energy system to make sure that our energy policies and our energy systems work on behalf of the most vulnerable uh, in our society. And I think going forward for the next 20 years, if I'm, if I'm fortunate enough to have that opportunity, um, I think just continuing to uh, identify um, issues of importance and concern to working families and just having an opportunity to to be a part of a team to contribute on these on these issues that's that's what gets me going every day is uh you know i i think i've got a pretty fun job um it's challenging but uh i really enjoy the opportunity to to try and work as part of a system to try to make things better for for more types of folks well, it's important work that you do, and uh, again, congratulations on everything that you've accomplished the last 20 years, and uh, look forward to continuing to work with you uh, the next 20 years. Uh, looking at a shorter window, let's say the next 20 months, um, you mentioned uh, uh, quite graciously the, the work that the commission has been doing as we all deal with uh, the realities and challenges being posed by COVID-19. Uh, as you know, we recently hosted a two-day tech conference on the impacts of COVID-19 on the energy industry. We heard different perspectives during the conference and expect more as we receive additional comments. Wanted to get your perspective. What do you see as some of the longer term impacts of the pandemic on the energy industry and, and what will that impact be on consumers? Um, and and, and what, what path do you see the recovery taking in terms of, of timing and, and, and how should consumers be prepared for that? That's a great question, Mr. Chairman. So first, I think, you know, COVID has significantly impact just not public health and public health institutions, but also the economic security of tens of millions of Americans. I mean, even before COVID, the, the Federal Reserve did a study where it was revealed that 40% of Americans didn't have access to $1,000 in the case of some sort of financial emergency. And that, so that's before COVID, right? And, and maybe to me and you, $1,000 isn't a ton of money, but for way too many people, it is uh, a massive amount of money. And uh, families just haven't been able to save uh, in this economy. And then you've got COVID, which, you know, at the end of May, we had at the, at the peak of unemployment, we had 40 million Americans or one out of every four workers were collecting unemployment, right? This was just a unprecedented, uh, shock to the economy, uh, which had just devastating impacts on families, many of which were already at the margins, right? I mean, Mr. Chairman, uh, the a lot of the folks that uh, were suffering through unemployment were, you know, had been previously employed in, in mainly low wage uh, sectors of the economy. These are important jobs. These are frontline jobs, uh, servers, you know, in the service industry. 
uh, things like that. People we encounter sometimes every day, um, but that aren't really well financially compensated and haven't been able to put away savings. Uh, and so when the shock hit, folks were left with with little to no additional resources. Um, and so that has a big impact on energy because for low-income families, the typical low-income family spends about 16% of their total income on energy. You compare that to like 3.5% is the typical burden for a non-low-income family. So low-income families are spending a much higher share of their limited income on energy. And so anything we can do to keep energy bills affordable um, is going to uh, be key. And one of the big things that we've seen in response to uh, the COVID crisis has been uh, states issuing moratoriums on service disconnections. Because as you probably know, I mean, this isn't FERC jurisdictional stuff, but uh, it does impact uh, energy markets. When uh, folks fall behind on their, their utility payments, there are procedures where the utility can disconnect that household uh, from the system and turn off their electricity um, or their heat. And so, um, you know, nine states uh, enacted um, total uh, moratoriums on shutoffs. You'll be happy to know that Kentucky was one of those uh, nine states that that's been a leader on that issue. Um, and 22 other states had partial um, uh, protections, which means that right now there are 19 states that have no moratorium protections. So folks that are falling behind on their, their payments through not necessarily any fault of their own, but because we're in the middle of a, of a crippling pandemic, can see their their utility service disconnected. And, and there are racial disparities there too. Uh, African-American households typically see disconnection rates uh, double that of, of uh, white families. And so um, I think understanding that, even though FERC doesn't have jurisdiction over that, but um, just understanding that there is a crisis going on at the retail level of the electricity system that's important for us to know when we're looking at decisions with, with wholesale markets. And as you know, there's, there's ample precedent about the importance of utility service. There's a 1978 Supreme Court case, Mr. Chairman, that, that said that utility service is a necessity of modern life. And disconnecting that service for even short periods of time can threaten health and safety. As you know, Mr. Chairman, Section 201 of the Federal Power Act states that the business of transmitting and selling electric energy for distribution to the public is affected with a public interest. And so there's a reason why FERC has all of these sweeping regulatory authorities over the energy system. It's because energy and electricity in particular has always been recognized as a unique and important product. And that's why we, we take care when we make decisions about uh, how to regulate it. And I think one of the things that this pandemic uh, has highlighted is folks no longer take for granted uh, the, the, the fact that uh, we have a reliable and affordable system for electricity 
distribution in this country. I've had numerous folks comment to me that uh, with all of the challenges they're facing uh, during this COVID challenge, they can't imagine uh, not having access to to electricity on top of it, that it would just further exacerbate the, the stresses that they and their families are facing. So because, again, uh, some of this is outside of FERC's purview, uh, can you just walk me through how an organization like yours advocates for consumers in a situation like this? Is this something that's being handled at the state legislative level, at the state PUC level? Is there congressional action that's going to be necessary uh, to deal with this? Because what you lay out, the possibility of these shutouts, shutoffs, uh, that could be really troubling for, uh, uh, for families uh, across the country. How does an organization like Public Citizen um, work to ensure that consumer voices are heard in a dire situation like this? Great question, Mr. Chairman. So first and foremost, it takes coalition work uh, for an organization like Public Citizen our ability to unilaterally uh, make big impacts on something like this isn't as strong unless we are working in coalition with other organizations. So uh, one of our frequent partners on this is the National Consumer Law Center, which is a consumer group based out of Boston. They've got a, a D.C. office, and I'm really proud to work with their um, uh, folks, they, they are a legal advocacy group working on behalf of low income consumers. And so they've been doing a lot of frontline work on uh, fighting for legal protections for low income consumers, including moratorium. And another thing that, that we've seen since COVID has hit, Mr. Chairman, is there have been some climate activist groups that typically haven't been involved in issues like uh, shut-off moratoriums, uh, groups like the Center for Biological Diversity and Food and Water Watch and a whole bunch of others that have actually been dedicating staff resources to advocating at the state level and at, and at Congress to um, expand um, uh, these uh, moratoriums on uh, service disconnections. And so it's been really gratifying to see uh, not just consumer groups, not just anti-poverty groups, but some of the environmental and, and climate activist groups. And of course, there's been cooperation with some utilities as well, um, which is um, uh, going to be important. And so, yes, most of the advocacy is, is at the state legislative or state utility commission level. Uh, but there is a, an angle here for Congress. Uh, the House passed a bill in May um, that uh, included um, uh, language on utility disconnections. And we do see a federal role for this. Like I said, there's there's 19 states that currently have no protections at all. And and we do feel that that, you know, COVID is a uh, is a national issue and it requires a national response. And so you know, all of this takes resources um, and, and, you know, we don't have, um, you know, the staff or budget resources that, that other organizations do. But we're really proud to be part of a coalition uh, working uh, on this. Logistically, how are you guys coordinating all of this? Uh, you know, we at FERC uh, made a decision early on March 12th to transition 
to full telework. And so the entire agency is still operating at full telework status. And uh, I'm proud that we've been able to uh, to maintain the commission's uh, workload and, and, and not miss a beat. Um, but what you're describing here, there would appear to be, at least from an outsider's uh, perspective, a lot of logistical challenges. How have you guys navigated the complex logistics of working in this COVID environment? You know, that, that's a great question, Mr. Chairman, and it's tough um, because, you know, public citizen, our offices are closed. We've got some essential staff, mainly with our accounting department, um, that are, are in one of our geographic offices in D.C., um, but for the rest of us, we're all remote, and so that's been very tough. I can tell you that Public Citizen has taken some steps to try and improve morale and communication with all of us. So we used to have all staff meetings four times a year, every quarter. And once COVID hit, we moved those to once a week where everybody uh, uh, who is employed at Public Citizen, we've got about 85 total employees um, that work on a huge array of issues. Um, So we get together for a video call um, once a week um, where we address all sorts of issues, um, whether it's, you know, how people are dealing with COVID to, um, uh, you know, issues stemming from the May killing of George Floyd and, and conversations about race that, that a lot of America is having. And we've been having those conversations internally at Public Citizen as well to how we can be more efficient in working together on these things. So it, it's definitely been challenging, but I think that it's, we've, it's been pretty successful. And I think in talking to my coworkers and colleagues, morale is, is pretty good, uh, all things considering. So, you know, it's a, char- it, it's a, it's a challenge. Uh, and I know that there's a lot of folks that, you know, have zoom and video call fatigue and, and, uh, uh, I hear that, but um, it has been helpful to uh, be able to connect with people uh, using, you know, easily accessible technologies uh, like some of these video conferencing um, programs um, that is able to not just keep us in touch with our colleagues and our friends, but um, to make uh, group working on some of these projects uh, uh, possible. It's uh, certainly something I think when uh, America and the world, when we get up off the mat and, and recover from this, uh, I, I, there will be case studies on on how people navigated uh, these challenges. It's certainly uh, uh, fascinating times. Pivoting uh, a little bit, um, uh, just uh, to, to build on some of the issues that you've laid out. Within the last 15 years, uh, you've appeared on popular television programs like the Colbert Report uh, to discuss alternative energy issues and energy affordability. Um, so just first and foremost, what were those experiences like, and did they help bring attention to the work that, uh, that you're doing at Public Citizen? Yeah, uh, it, it's always fun to do TV, um, uh, but definitely uh, I appeared twice on uh, Stephen Colbert had a comedy show several years back uh, called The Colbert Report on Comedy Central, and I was a guest twice on his show. Um, the first time uh, he had his producer had seen me 
do a debate on the PBS NewsHour with uh, opposite someone from the American Petroleum Institute uh, about some sort of uh, oil market related issue. Uh, you know, as you know, Mr. Chairman, I, I do a lot of work at FERC. I also uh, am very active at your sister agency, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which oversees commodity derivative markets. And so I do a lot of work on petroleum and natural gas markets as well. Um, and so I got this call from a producer after I'm on the PBS NewsHour, which, you know, PBS NewsHour is a it's a very uh, serious, measured uh, program. Everyone uh, has a chance to speak softly. Uh, and so they said, hey, we, we saw you on there and we'd like to have you on the show, but it's going to be a lot less boring. <laughs> and so I do think um, any time, Mr. Chairman, that you can um, be exposed to different types of audiences, because the types of folks watching the PBS NewsHour are probably going to be different from the folks tuning into Comedy Central. Anytime you can get your message out to different and broader audiences is going to be a big benefit. Um, and that's why I, I deal with the media a lot. Um, you know, I, I talk to reporters uh, uh, for uh, a large part of, of my work day, um, which I enjoy, but I do it because there's an opportunity that new people are going to read an article that, that might include our perspective on an issue. Um, and that helps us reach new individuals and new members. Um, uh, and so it's always a, a great opportunity. Well, um, uh, I, I certainly uh, appreciate the, the approach. And um, as somebody who uh, really enjoys the, the, the substance of, of complex energy policy issues, I think efforts like that um, to, to make the, the, the broader public aware of these issues uh, are, are so vital. Um, and so I appreciate you working uh, uh, that, those uh, angles. Since you were on Colbert, the energy landscape has really completely transformed uh, as renewables and battery storage uh, have become much more cost competitive with traditional sources of energy. How much do you think that changing consumer preferences have played into this shift towards cleaner sources of energy, um, not just amongst families, but, you know, Fortune 500 companies are now demanding cleaner energy. How much have consumers really been at the forefront of driving this change? I, consumers have played a huge role. The the least talked about facet of the energy revolution that we've seen in the past 15 years has been the flatlining of electricity demand since, you know, 2005 or 2006. Um, so our population has grown, our GDP has grown, but yet our electricity consumption has remained essentially flatlined. And a lot of that has to do with energy efficiency improvements and individuals and businesses responding to uh, opportunities to uh, uh, use less energy. Uh, it's also about having access to more types of uh, more energy efficient appliances, even though we have more gadgets than we did a generation ago. A lot of these gadgets use less uh, energy than their predecessors. 
But there's always opportunities to do more. And, and Mr. Chairman, where the big challenges lie and where the priorities ought to be are for those folks that don't have the resources to be able to use less energy. And, and a lot of this is renters, who people who don't own the, the home in which they live. And so they don't really have an opportunity to upgrade to better appliances because if you're a renter, you're not going to get a more energy efficient refrigerator or uh, AC system because you don't own the place. You also may not have the financial resources to do that. And that's where weatherization and energy efficiency grant programs are so essential. And the federal government has a weatherization assistance program that provides direct grants to upgrade uh, the, the insulation and, and uh, windows and other aspects of building uh, weatherization so that folks uh, don't have to spend so much money on, on, on uh, heating or cooling because now the building is more efficient where they live. But there's never enough money in those programs. And so I think going forward, doing all we can do to um, dedicate more financial resources to uh, energy efficiency and home weatherization programs, especially those targeted for, um, for low-income uh, folks, is going to be really important. As you also know, during COVID, mass transit has been – and again, this is a little outside of FERC purview, but, you know, people are not taking mass transit like they, like they used to. And some of that, of course, is because they're not having to go into a job. But some of it is because people are scared about the health impacts. Uh, and so, it, you know, the electricity system is, is one important part of uh, uh, our energy uh, system. But transportation is one of the, the biggest. And, you know, everyone's in agreement that the future is in the electrification that can't be focused on just uh, substituting 300 million gas-powered cars for 300 million electric-powered cars. We have to have a mass transit system that can accommodate people safely and can serve all communities equitably. And so I think these are the types of infrastructure investments that um, are really important that have huge uh, uh, social and economic benefits uh, and that ought to be a priority for investment. Uh, curious to get your take on the pace of change uh, and the energy transition. Some people believe that the shifts that are occurring are happening too slowly as we confront climate change, while others believe we are moving too quickly uh, from reliable uh, away from reliable traditional generation. What what are your thoughts on on the pace of change we've seen, and 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 where do you fall? on that spectrum and, and what, what should consumers uh, be concerned about uh, as we look at the energy transition? Great question, Mr. Chairman. So it, it has been remarkable. We are in a, just an incredible era of very rapid um, transformational change that's being triggered by new technological innovation and deployment. And, you know, Mr. Chairman, I mean, history is punctuated with social and economic change that is triggered by these sort of um, technological shifts. But what we're seeing in energy right now, 20 years ago, 
very few were predicting that we would see the sort of price competitiveness that renewables have in today's power markets, where renewables are now often the least cost resource in a number of different uh, uh, markets. And when that is paired with energy storage, um, you can get over the intermittency challenge and uh, provide you know, zero emission um, uh, affordable energy. Uh, but there are going to be uh, uh, infrastructure uh, associated costs with that, with that transition. And there's a lot of different stakeholders. So I do think that the technology is at a place where it can be deployed, but there are impediments. And some of those impediments are, are structural and engineering, and some of those impediments are more political in nature. And I think doing all we can to ensure that um, we get as rapidly as possible the technologies that are proven to be cost-effective and clean and sustainable into the market uh, as quickly as possible, I think, ought to be a goal. Um, and, and some of that involves infrastructure investment and, you know, government has always played a role in infrastructure. Uh, you go back to article one, section eight of the U S constitution. And it says Congress shall build the postal roads, right? The postal roads were, you know, the internet of the day, in addition to the, the road network for a, a very young Republic, uh, when, when Morse invented the telegraph. It was Congress that appropriated the money uh, to build that national and then international network. The railroads uh, were beneficiaries of a massive congressional um, uh, program in the 1860s. The 1954 Interstate Highway Act was a massive uh, infrastructure program funded by the government and taxpayers that transformed the transportation landscape. And so Going from the very early days of the Republic to the 20th century, the government has always played a role in, in infrastructure investments, and I think today is, is no different. Focusing uh, in that vein on something FERC-specific, uh, I've not been shy in stating that um, I'm particularly proud of the work we did on Order 841 to remove uh, barriers to entry and enable battery storage resources to be compensated uh, for all of their attributes for capacity, for energy, for ancillary services. Don't want to get ahead of my colleagues, but we are similarly working um, uh, on a rulemaking regarding moving some of those barriers to aggregated distributed energy resources. Uh, can you speak a little bit uh, from the consumer perspective on how actions like that within FERC markets uh, can benefit the deployment of technology, um, help the environment, the economy, and consumers? FERC is, is a critical player in that. And, and again, your leadership on the battery storage order uh, is to be applauded. Um, and, you know, now we're involved in some various compliance filings with the different uh, regional operators of the grid or, or RTOs to, to enact that order. Uh, but we're seeing progress. And so, uh, there's no question that energy storage is a game changer. And, you know, there are um, uh, technologies that are available for home use, but this is going to be mainly upper income uh, folks that are going to be able to take advantage of those. And so, again, 
the key going forward is um, I remember Bill Clinton giving a speech in the mid nineties as we were um, beginning the, the sort of telecommunications revolution during that time. And he, and he warned about a digital divide, meaning that there were going to be parts of the country that were going to be able to freely access the benefits of these new technologies. And then there were going to be parts of the U S that for a variety of reasons, we're not going to be able to access that. And you can't have a well-functioning Republic uh, with that kind of divide. And I think we see the same thing with, with clean technology. Um, the technology is there, but making sure that all uh, uh, different types of consumers, particularly moderate and low-income consumers, can access the benefits of these technologies. That's why we always have to build equity into our, into our deployment strategies. Are all types of classes of consumers, particularly low-income, going to be able to enjoy the benefits of these technologies? And so this is not a barrier to rolling out clean technologies. It just means that we need to always think about equity when we're uh, uh, putting together policies to maximize clean energy deployment. I want to pivot a little bit and uh, tie together a couple of the themes that we've been discussing, uh, circling back to, um, you know, your appearances uh, on Colbert and how you use that to uh, kind of reach a, a, a broader audience. Um, you and I have discussed uh, the impacts of, of COVID on the wine industry and with restaurants uh, uh, struggling in the face of uh, COVID, what the impact is potentially on growers and the quality and quantity of wine going forward. Um, as we uh, start to deal with the realities of climate change and man's impact and, and the need uh, to decarbonize, I've found it most interesting when people can make the challenges being posed by climate change relatable to broader audiences. One of the best presentations I saw at an energy conference was given by um, winemaker Michael Mondavi. And he spoke about what the impacts of changing temperatures would have on the wine industry and how the quality and character of the wine being grown in Napa today with temperature increases and changes in, in, in soil uh, and, and, and moisture that they may not be able to produce that wine in Napa in the future and may have to look further north. And those same implications would exist in, you know, the Champagne region of France. And I will tell you, he had the attention of every person at that conference because he made the realities of climate change understandable and, and, and clearly demonstrated the impacts to people on something they were interested in, uh, which is their wine. Uh, just kind of curious uh, with with your background and, 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 and interest in wine um, and just that general example, how are other ways uh, that, that folks like yourself can, can bring attention to these complex energy policy issues in a way that the public uh, can follow them and really take interest in them? That's a great question. And for the purposes of this segment of the podcast, my wife would be a way better subject. Uh, first of all, uh, far more entertaining and articulate, but she's a wine professional. Um, she's an accomplished sommelier and also a wine importer and distributor. 
Um, so she's the expert, but what I've, I have gleaned from her, uh, over the years is that, yeah, climate change, like you heard from Mandavi's presentation is having disruptive effects all over the place where, and, and in the United States, from my understanding, again, I'm not the expert, my spouse is, but from my understanding, American producers have more liberal ability to grow things in certain areas, whereas places like France, it is very strictly controlled. You can only grow Pinot grapes in this particular region, and you can't protect the grapes. You can't even cover them. They have age-old rules that are really old school um, about how the grapes can be grown and in what specific regions. And climate change is disrupting all of that. Because what once was a perfect region in France for, for a Pinot grape a uh, hundred years ago isn't necessarily the perfect region today. And then you've got other areas of the world where trying to grow grapes was a non-starter. They just, you know, you might as well make uh, jelly out of them. But now with changes in client, it is um, opening up new areas for cultivation and development. So it's, it impacts all of us. And, you know, I've got a, a healthy appreciation for wine. I enjoy a good glass with dinner uh, and understanding that climate change is going to be changing some of not just the established uh, regions uh, where grapes are grown, but the quality of grapes uh, and the quality of wine. This is a big deal. Uh, and it really shows you know, the urgency of the need to act, because uh, it's not just about uh, enjoying a glass of wine. It's about, you know, lives are at stake here. Uh, there are entire areas where the debate isn't, can we grow grapes? It's, can we grow food anymore to sustain our populations? Uh, with rising sea levels, it's about uh, whether or not uh, coasts where huge populations are centered are going to continue to be um, habitable. So, all of this is preventable, um, not right away. Uh, obviously, the impacts of climate change is going to take another generation to fix, but you have to start it now, which is why there are so many people, particularly young people, that, that understand the urgency of reducing greenhouse gas emissions uh, in order to address the climate crisis. And you know, it'd be one thing if solutions were far away. The solutions are here. You know, as you know, Mr. Chairman, the technologies are, are, are ready for the market. We just need to, to, to deploy them. Well, we've covered a lot today. We've gone from COVID to Colbert to wine. Uh, I want to bring it home uh, with college. Uh, speaking to young people, uh, you are a member of the faculty at the University of Maryland Honors College, uh, where you teach uh, energy and climate policy. I had the great privilege of visiting with your class, and it was just so much fun to interact with your students and, and talk about these issues much the way that we've been talking on this podcast. Uh, could you share with everyone what you cover in this course and how it intersects with uh, some of the issues that we grapple with at the commission? Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, so I've been really privileged to since 2011 to uh, teach one class a semester 
at the University of Maryland within their honors college. And so the students that I am teaching every semester, these, they are the cream of the crop of the public education system. And let me tell you something, these are impressive, impressive young men and young women. Uh, typically 75% of my students are STEM majors, science, technology, engineering, math. Um, routinely, my students, after they graduate, I'm getting emails from them. They're working at Google. They're working uh, for Boeing, for Lockheed. These are rocket scientists. These are uh, computer scientists. Uh, I had one student a couple semesters ago. She's 19 years old, and she was working in a lab to reprogram the DNA of E. coli bacteria to train them to eat methane gas so you can deploy them into landfills to you know, address harmful emissions. Um, a 19-year-old uh, you know, uh, biochem major doing that kind of work, it's, it's incredible. And so the way that the curriculum works is I am offering for many of them their first sort of political uh, college-level political science course. And so the, the content changes every semester. I teach current events. I teach current uh, energy and climate policy debates that are going on in Washington, D.C. and some of the states and examining uh, them through the lens of the different stakeholders or actors that are trying to influence the process. And so you know, introducing them to, you know, the way that trade associations work, uh, whether it be Edison Electric Institute or American Petroleum Institute, or the American Wind Energy Association. How do they function? Uh, who are their members? How do they advocate? And then uh, comparing and contrasting with, say, the Sierra Club or Natural Resources Defense Council, or even a public citizen, uh, and using real-life um, situations uh, to try to illustrate um, how uh, these different, sometimes competing uh, interest groups are able to influence legislative and regulatory outcomes. Um, and so uh, I was really honored that, that you uh, guest uh, spoke uh, last year to my students. Uh, your colleague, Commissioner Glick, uh, spoke uh, this past semester, uh, and it was just fantastic to get FERC's perspective. Historically, I haven't covered a lot of FERC issues because I was afraid that no one would take my class because FERC isn't a well-understood um, agency, despite its uh, incredible importance. But increasingly, I've been um, uh, talking about a number of the high-profile debates that have been occurring in, in various FERC proceedings. And so it's a, it's a popular class. Uh, I enjoy it. Um, and and the, the thing that's really rewarding is just to, to interact with these incredibly bright, promising young people. It gives you enormous faith that the next generation has got this covered uh, because these, these young people are incredibly sharp uh, and it's an it's a honor and a privilege uh, uh, to be called their professor for a semester. Yeah, I have to tell you, I was so impressed with their preparation um, and and the back and forth dialogue and really how informed they were. Uh, totally understand that, you know, the the issues the commission has to deal with are, are complex and, uh, 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 you know, uh, there's no question that um, while 
as you stated, well, Brooke is an incredibly important agency. It's not a broadly well understood agency. These kids were on it and 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 were really interested and engaged and had a had a strong understanding of the policy. I've been talking about how in recent years the the commission has become more visible to the public. You know, have you similarly seen in observed increase in interest in energy policy? You know, when I was nineteen, I don't even know that, you know, classes like this were available to me. Uh, it's pretty awesome that these kids have this opportunity, but more so that they're interested and, and, and passionate about it. Um, uh, are you kind of seeing uh, uh, growth in interest in, in energy policy issues? Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, and, and I, I agree with you. When I was 19, I, I didn't have uh, a class offering like this. And when I graduated from college and, and got my first job in D.C., I was working on tax and economic policy. That actually was my first gig out of college uh, here in D.C. For, for three and a half years before I made the pivot in the year 2000 onto um, uh, energy policy. Um, so I think that young people really are aware of the challenge of climate change. And so for the students that take that awareness to the next level. How do I understand what's going on? Um, what can I do to be a part of a solution? That is gonna immediately lead them to energy policy. And so that's what I'm trying to introduce them to at the University of Maryland is just, here are uh, some of the, um, the tools, the policy tools that can be implemented to move the country to reducing our greenhouse gas emission footprint and and make uh, our country and world a more sustainable place. And so I, I think that young people are just very engaged on this issue. Um, they just have a thirst for knowledge, to understand the details. Um, and I hope that I'm providing that to them. Uh, and, and, you know, Mr. Chairman, I always try to uh, provide an array of perspectives um, I don't want them to just learn, you know, energy policy according to Tyson Slocum. Uh, I want them to have um, experience from a lot of different perspectives. And so I always try to bring in um, a lot of different voices, um, uh, you know, from industry, from uh, the environmental movement uh, across the board so that they're exposed to all of that. Well, I was honored to uh, participate last year and, uh, Please keep me posted as uh, uh, you embark on your uh, fall curriculum. Um, and should there be an opportunity, either virtually or in person, uh, I'd be honored to uh, to participate again. Uh, I'd love I'd love to have you back, Mr. Chairman. Well, I appreciate that. Um, thank you for uh, for your time today and for joining us uh, on the Envision Forum podcast. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, we covered a lot. Um, always enjoy hearing your perspectives. Uh, you uh, obviously have tremendous expertise, but you also have a way of uh, conveying these complex issues in, in, in a really entertaining forum. And um, uh, just have enjoyed the discussion today and uh, look forward to continuing it in the future. Mr. Chairman, I really appreciated the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. The Envision podcast is sponsored by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and its chairman, Neil Chatterjee. 
Views expressed in this podcast do not represent the views of FERC or any individual FERC commissioner.